Um, let's pray before we get into this text. Father, we thank you for the wonderful portion of the Gospels where Jesus is answering questions and uh, this critical time in his ministry. And today he gets to ask. So we just thank you for his wisdom. And it reveals so much about him, which brings forth worship out of our hearts to love him more, to wait for him, to be thankful. And we just ask you to bless our time in the word this morning in Christ's name, amen. amen. Okay, we're back in the Passion Week of Jesus. He's in the temple. We've already mentioned that in all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the overwhelming amount of space in each gospel is devoted to the last week in Jesus' life, more than any other period of his life or ministry. So one reason for that, of course, is because this is the time when this great purpose for his coming is being accomplished, his atoning death for the sins of the world and his resurrection from the dead. That's everything. So obviously it's going to be weighted in that direction. But the information we have during that week from Palm Sunday through the, through the whole week, it's just priceless in itself, even before we get to uh, his crucifixion on Friday. The ministry of Jesus in the great temple is among the most glorious moments of his ministry. He just shines so brightly here. So he's in his father's house. He's cleansed it of corruption for the first time in years. And we find him daily teaching in the temple. And his wisdom amazes people listening to him. It's, it's Tuesday, and this is kind of called the day of questions because all of his enemies come to him right now and try to trip him up or throw him some kind of a question. Uh, they question his authority. They try to get him in trouble with the Romans over taxes. They try to confound him in a theological debate over the resurrection. We've looked at all that stuff. But each time, he answers them brilliantly. And last week, we looked at the final question. And this question may have been sincere. Um, Matthew tells us it was asked by a namikos, an a expert in the law of God and in the law of Moses. And he asks which commandment is the greatest. And of course, Jesus gives the only correct answer, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. And all of these question encounters are really wonderful to read, not only because it shows us how brilliant he is, but each brief answer that he gives to each question builds in us a God-centered view of life. And that's what you have to have, a God-centered view of life. You can't keep God over here and you be the center of your life. That doesn't work. He's got to be the center and you are under him and live for him and serve him and give him his due. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's the, that's the key. And um, it not only shows how br brilliant he is, but we get this God-centered view of everything. And we learned in the first question when they asked him about his authority that he's God's son and the kingdom belongs to him. And that answered question number one, and that ran all the way from 21, 23, all the way to 22, 14 on the subject of his authority. And his authority is that of the son of God, the unique son of God. The Pharisees' question about the coin follows that, and that transforms all of our thinking about the government and being subject to the state and where that comes in. We honor authority. The government has its place. But the things that belong to God 
are God's and they come first above all things. God comes first. And then we had the silly question from the Sadducees about the resurrection and that gives Jesus an opportunity to affirm the great reality that we're all made for eternity. We're designed by God for that and that the great joy of heaven is not extending the pleasures of earth in, in some other realm but the, the joy of heaven is actually seeing God face to face and beholding him and worshiping him and knowing him intimately that's so much richer and more important and glorious than anything down here it's a God-centered view of eternal life so the final question put it all together what's the great commandment and when Jesus gave that answer that you should love the Lord your God which should be really obvious but you know your average human being has no idea that that's what they should be doing loving God with all their heart mind soul and strength they most people that never even crosses their mind but it should be really obvious And if we weren't so fallen as human beings, then it should be obvious that the Lord is the center of all things and his will is supreme and he's the only object worthy of our highest and deepest loves and affections. If human beings weren't so twisted, we'd all know that. That would be basic knowledge and we'd all be striving for that. But Jesus points us directly to that great great truth. So the day of questions is wonderful as you look at each one and his answer to each one. Each answer reveals a marvelous God-centered truth. But the last question from that uh, lawyer, the Namikos, Luke's gospel tells us, after he asked that question, it said, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So there doesn't work. Whatever they're trying to get him, to trap him, it's not working. So now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. So that's how the chapter ends. He's going to ask the question this time, and publicly. All of these efforts to trip Jesus up were done publicly. In fact, the very first question, the chief priests and the elders, when they came to ask him about his authority, they just barged into a teaching session, and he was in the middle of something, and they interrupted him. It was pretty rude, but you know they felt like they had all the authority. And so this question, he's going to ask publicly, but to the Pharisees, because they're the ones that are standing there. They were part of the last question, and they're the ones... Um, that were there. Why would he do that? Um, why ask them a question? Why keep this conversation that was so intended to be negative towards him? Why would he want to keep it going? I mean, they're done. He's bested all of them. They're all gathered around. They're getting ready to kind of withdraw. So why keep it going? Well, none of them had asked the question that was the most pressing question of the day. They were talking about the resurrection and, and taxes and all this stuff. And the most pressing question of the day is who is Jesus? And the people have proclaimed him the Messiah and tell us about the Messiah. I mean, that's the question that should be asked. And so nobody asked that, of course, because why would they ask that? That would just get people thinking, maybe he is the Messiah. So they're not doing that. They're just trying to trip him up. But that's the real question. Their questions didn't get to the heart of what needed to be asked during that last week of Jesus' life before he offers up his life on Friday for our sins. So Jesus brings up the central issue. Um, He did bring it up in his answer to the chief priests in their first question, his parable about the landowner and the murderous renters in chapter 21. And he references the stone that the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone and all of that. And he said it was his father's house when the children were singing Hosanna to the son of David and when the people were welcoming him in as the blessed king who comes in the name of the Lord, all of that. He's the Messiah. He's 
He's the Son of God. He has total authority. He's the Messiah. All of that is all tied in there. So it's not taxes. It's not heaven. It's, it's not even the greatest commandment. The Messiah question is forefront, and he's already moved them in that direction through parables. But now he's going to go direct. So the questions um, for him, from him are different. He's going to bring up this central question, graciously giving the Pharisees an opportunity to hear the truth one more time. He doesn't have to give it to them, but he's wanting to. And the utter ruin that they can expect by rejecting him is part of the theme. So Jesus asked a question in 2241 and gets back an um, a answer that uh, we need to hear. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? That's a good question. Actually, it's a really easy one, that part. It says, they said to him, the son of David. Those words must have stung them a little bit. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Because that's like the easiest question. You know, if you, were, if you were on a late night talk show and you were a politician that the late night talk show host liked, what kind of questions would he give you? We call them puffball questions, right? This is a puffball question. The Messiah, whose son is he? Well, everybody knows he's the son of David. I mean, come on. What kind of a question is that? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It's the same idea. So whose son is he? Everybody knows. The rabbis taught this all the time. It's straight out of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 16. I mean, it's David's son that's going to be sitting on his throne forever. Jeremiah 33, 15, all the way through there. The Jeremiah passage says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. It's so clear. Whose son is he? He's the son of David. Of course. But that's not the real question. That's the lead-in question. So he's coming up to the real question. He wanted them to answer that question publicly so he could ask the next question. In verse 43, he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's not an easy answer. That's a hard question. And it's, one of the, it's in one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. And these experts, they hadn't thought about that before. What's going on? What's this question about? David was the highest of the kings of the earth. He's actually called that in Psalm 89. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the recipient of the divine covenant that God made with him, a promise that one of his descendants would one day be the head of an everlasting kingdom over the entire earth. No other human king has ever received a promise like that, only David. We call it the Davidic covenant. It's a huge moment in the, in the ongoing story of the Bible. The whole Bible is being driven out of the Abrahamic covenant. And a thousand years after Abraham, this other covenant is given to this guy, David which really narrows down and in some ways expands that promise because it's narrowing it down to a very particular man's descendants and in that descendant, he's going to rule over the whole earth. 
in a, on an everlasting throne. I mean, there's, nobody's gotten a promise like that other than David. And Jesus says David was in the spirit. So that means David was, David was a prophet. God spoke to him. He was a king, but he had a prophetic reality. Anybody God speaks to directly is a prophet. He was a composer of scripture. Um, we know that. And one of the most well-known messianic scriptures in the Old Testament is Psalm 110, written by David. We're going to look at that. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Some psalms are just about the Messiah, and that's one of them. <clears throat> All Jewish authorities and teachers regarded it as a messianic psalm in Jesus' day. We have every, this isn't like a trick. Everybody knew back then this was about the Messiah. And some of the other psalms, like Psalm 2, for example, is a messianic psalm. It uses language that's so exalted, it has to be pointing to somebody beyond the current king, David, or any of his immediate um, family. Psalm 110 is really unique, though, because in Psalm 110, the king himself, David, does homage to the person of the Messiah. And we get a really keen insight into the biblical text here on Jesus' part. So let's go ahead and look at that. Psalm begins with the, the words that Jesus actually quotes. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now two big questions are answered in that first sentence. Is this great king somebody else or just an idealized sort of picture of David, the current king? Well, he's got to be somebody else, somebody to come because David addresses him as somebody other than himself. The Lord said to my Lord, and David's talking. So David has a Lord who's different than God. God is speaking to his Lord and that person is over him. The second question is, is the one to come merely a man or is he more than a man? And to answer that, let's look at this, the rest of this psalm here. Now, scholars call this an enthronement psalm in, in, or an enthronement oracle. It's, on the day when a new king came to be crowned, the coronation day, a few words were said over him in the form of a blessing and if a prophet was there, it might have a prophetic strength or prophetic implications. But this one's totally different because the king himself is giving the prophetic utterance regarding a king that is higher than himself, his Lord. Verse 1 literally says, the oracle of Yahweh, that's God's covenant name, that's that sacred name. In your Bible, it's all capital letter L-O-R-D. Whenever you see all capitals, that's the sacred name, Yahweh. The oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. So God, the creator of the universe, is speaking to David's Lord And the second use of Lord is not all capitals, that's the word Adonai, and that just means Lord in the typical way we use it, your chieftain, the one that's over you, the, it's a common word for Lord. So this is the word of the living God, Yahweh, to David's Lord, his superior. Now that's really curious, and this is the point that Jesus is trying to press home. The Messiah, we all know, Jesus is saying, is David's son, that's what the Bible teaches. How can David's son be David's Lord? You know, if a king has a son, and they're both living at the same time, the, the older is still over the younger. Until he dies, or completely abdicates, or something like that, he is, he's over that son. He's the father king, and the child is the son king, or whatever. Um, it's, it's always that way. They're always below. Because age is honored, and um, his experience, and all of that is just the way the world works. So, so this is really interesting, 
Because if David is speaking to his Lord, that Lord has to be in a higher position, and to be that, the Lord would have to precede David, not follow him, right? So he would have to both exist before David and be one of David's descendants. How can you do that? Well, if the pre-existent Son of God who is there from the beginning, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He's eternally self-existent, and He becomes incarnate in a descendant of David, a woman named Mary, then both can be true. He's got to be more than a man. That's the point. That's the point. And look at what God says to... uh, David's Lord in the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he precedes David as David's creator and Lord, but follows David as his son and heir. And God is going to put him on a throne with him until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. So how could that be? Well, the first chapter of the book of Hebrews actually helps us there because it can't be an angel. Hebrews 1.8 says of God's son, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then down in Hebrews 1.13 it says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the book of Hebrews in chapter one, it actually brings up the same Psalm, Psalm 110, and says, God would never say that to an angel. Sit on my throne with me until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. No angel has ever heard those words. No angel can can be that honored. So who is it? It's God's son. So the psalm refers in time to the ascension of Christ after his resurrection when he goes up into heaven, the risen Christ, and he takes his seat on his throne at the Father's side in heaven. On the day of Pentecost, just uh, weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter gave this great sermon in Jerusalem, in the streets of Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, and he, and he refers to Psalm 110 also. That psalm just keeps cropping up. He said in that sermon, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a, that's a sermon and a half. You guys know who you killed? Later, Peter, when he's arrested, tells the council in Jerusalem, he says about Jesus, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So Christ today reigns in heaven. He's a savior and a king. And notice, be seated until. So that suggests that his work is done. What's his primary work? His primary work up until um, he comes again is this atoning death, paying the debt of our sin. It is finished, right? He finished that job. Now that doesn't mean he's inactive right now. He rules today, he is Lord, he reigns, he is incomprehensibly glorious in heaven, but he is in heaven. 
And I love to think about the contrast, the, the lowly Jesus that we know in the incarnation that we read about in the Gospels versus the exalted Jesus. And think of the Apostle John's experience. You know at the Last Supper, we'll be getting there, but at the Last Supper, um, John was leaning on Jesus' breast. He was so tied to him and so emotional about the whole situation. He was leaning on his breast. Can you imagine leaning on Jesus' breast, hearing his heartbeat and his lung, lungs expanding and contracting and being that close to him? And yet, when John was an old man, he had this vision on the Isle of Patmos that's in the book of Revelation. That is his vision, the book of Revelation. The same man, he sees Christ as king in that book. In chapter 1, highly exalted, and he falls at his feet like a dead man. He doesn't say, can I lay my head on your breast? He, he's like terrified because of the exalted nature of Christ. And he falls at his feet like a dead man. He's so overwhelmed by his glory and his power and his majesty. So he ascended as the exalted glorified Lord of all and today Christ is the head of the church the Bible says and he intercedes for us that means he speaks to the Father on our behalf he prays for us Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is he who died yes rather who was raised who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us Romans 8.34 so his current reign is a major theme of scripture so the word sit at my right hand includes all of these ideas, his ascension, his enthronement, his rule over the church, his finished sacrifice, and his intercession on our behalf. He's pleading with us before the throne. Now, there's another really important word in verse 1 of Psalm 110. It's a, it's a little word, I mean, it's like a word you might not notice, but it's the word until. It's a really important word, until. God speaks to his Messiah upon his ascension, sit at my right hand, until. That means there's more to come, right? Until what? Christ will sit at the Father's right hand until he returns to earth as a conquering king. Verse 2, Psalm 110. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, we don't have time for all the related verses this morning, but um, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll get the big picture. God will subdue the rebellious earth with terrible judgments. Christ will come forth at the head of a holy army. We read that earlier in the service today, chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, verse 11. Israel will be converted to Christ in large numbers, Romans chapter 11, Zechariah chapter 13, Joel chapter 2, verse 27. And, and I believe that's the meaning of verse 3 here, the, this massive conversion of Israel to the Messiah King when he comes. Verse three, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. So in these first three verses, we have Christ the King coming to rule his people who gather to his cause and finally they will accept him by the work of God's grace in their hearts. They will accept him as their true King and their Savior. In fact, in Zechariah it says they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. They're going to be humbled by that and receive him. So just in those first three verses, you have all that. Now verse four is really interesting. It's fascinating. We have Christ presented as a priest. Now, of course, an Israelite priest is a Levite from the tribe of Levi. They cannot be kings, and he, and he can't be a Levite because he's from the tribe of Judah. The king uh, is a lion of Judah, right? So the tribe of the kingly line is a Judean line. 
But Messiah is of a priesthood that is older than that of the Levites, and it's better. And it belongs to a man named Melchizedek, who's one of the most mysterious guys in the whole Bible, and we don't know very much about him. But Melchizedek is this really curious figure in Genesis chapter 14. His name means king of righteousness, and he's the king, the ruler of a city called Salem, which means the city of peace. So the king of righteousness in the city of peace, and he was a king priest, and when Abraham won these battles, who could he tithe his spoils to? Well, he goes to this guy, Melchizedek, whoever he is, the king of righteousness, and he tithes to him and honors him. And that's all we know. It's in Genesis chapter 14. And then suddenly right here in this psalm, a thousand years later, David mentions this Messiah as a Melchizedekian priest. Yeah, priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow, where did that come from? And then not another word is said about Melchizedek for another thousand years until the writer of Hebrews ties it all together in his book. We don't have time for that, but Hebrews chapter 7, read it this afternoon. Any priesthood, of course, refers to the rite of sacrifice. In the case of Jesus, he is the sacrifice. He's offering up himself, his own body, which we're going to celebrate this morning. A priesthood also refers, here in Psalm 110, probably even more so, to the priest as a mediator, a stand-in between God and man. He represents man to God, and he represents God to man. That's what a priest does. A priest stands between God and man. Jesus said, what, John 16, 4, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's a mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So we have Christ the King, David's Lord, and Christ the priest, an eternal priesthood, and God even swears an oath on this priesthood. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow. And then we see Christ is a warrior in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's so Hebraic, the imagery there. It's just picture language. You can see the, the great warrior after this magnificent victory, and he's drinking from the brook, and he lifts up his head. He's, he's the victor over all things. So Psalm 110, this enthronement psalm, the enthronement is not the whole picture here. It's not the final scene. It's his conquest of the nations that is his, the final scene even in this psalm. So Jesus today is sitting on a heavenly throne, but he will not stay there forever. He's coming as a warrior against a rebellious planet, and his victory is assured by his divine power. So by referencing this psalm, coming back to... Tuesday in the Passion Week, by referencing this psalm to the Pharisees, Jesus is giving them a clear opportunity to know who he really is, to accept and submit to the word of God about who the Messiah really is. He will be a king, a priest, and a warrior. But sometime after he has ascended to the right hand of God Most High, he's David's son and David's Lord. He's more than a man, He's much more than an angel. He's the Son of God, eternal, one nature with the Father. So if Messiah were just a descendant of David, a mere descendant of David, David would be his Lord. That's the whole point. As a father king to a child king. As Abraham was honored as the father of his people, 
The first, you know, David was the first anointed king from the line of Judah. He's the great king, the highest of the kings of the earth. But Messiah, his child is above him, his Lord. So Messiah is a man, but no mere man. Now, you know, the Pharisees really should have known that. They really should have. I mean, they knew their Bibles. It's in their Bible, Isaiah chapter 9. We sing it at Christmas time. If you sing Handel's Messiah, you know it. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And you go, well, how can that happen? And Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's got to happen. So it's not just David's son. This is the eternal father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. Far greater than David. He's the son of God. And this promise was made by the angel Gabriel to Jesus' mother Mary before he was even born. Just the announcement when he said, you're going to carry the Messiah. The angel said, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. It's all there throughout the entire Bible. The same theme, the reign of the Messiah coming. Right now he's sitting down, taking care of business until, until the time. His father's ordering the events, the history of nations for his own divine purposes. We're just in it, in this particular moment in history. And we've got to be patient as the world careens into madness and self-will. Patient. We have to be patient but busy, right? Busy about the Lord's business. Because God wants to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation during this time. He's saving people to populate that kingdom. So in a world that tolerates everything but truth, people who believe truth, we're going to become not popular. The enemy even. It's inevitable. But what matters is not our acceptance by people. What matters is our obedience to our king. That's the only thing that matters. Not that we be loved, but that we love him faithfully. The one to whom we owe our heart, mind, soul, and strength completely. Too many Christians are way short on this great commandment love towards God and obedience to Him. They lose sight of Christ as Lord and King, but you can't lose sight of that. Yeah, He's a wonderful Savior, a complete awesome Savior, but He's the King. It's about Him. Life is about Him. We exist for Him. So the mockers are going to come, but we serve a risen king who is coming. And his victory is already assured by the promise of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So the power of sin has already been broken. The power of Satan has already been broken. Only time, only time is holding back the implementation of that kingdom because God is doing this wonderful saving work. Plus he's showing how wretched sin is. He's letting sinners run around doing all these horrible things so that everybody can see how bad leaving God is. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, the king is here now. He's with you. He's got other work to do right now, but he is David's Lord. He's not just a, just a man. 
He came once as a sacrificial lamb, and he will come again as the powerful lion. And it matters whose side you're on, doesn't it? It matters. Once the day of grace has passed, the righteous kingdom will come. Psalm 110 describes and, and the king um, smashing any remnant of rebellion left to dust. He just destroys it. And then there will come an age of perfect peace and unerring government. Wow, can I, can't even imagine that. <laughs> a perfect government, perfect justice. And it'll be the same Jesus we see in the New Testament, the same person, just exalted, and glorified and in the meantime we his church represent his interests here until he comes we proclaim what he has done and we proclaim what will come we're supposed to preach the kingdom of God as well as the salvation that he offers in his atoning death for sin we'll be mocked by some we'll be thanked by others but most of all we'll have the approval of our Lord if we do that for him and treat him like he's the most important thing, which he is by far. So Jesus has asked his question, and that's how the chapter concludes. And then verse 46 says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. long as the Pharisees are standing there, he's got a lot more to say. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken plainly often here by means of a simple question you point men back to you things they really should have known may we always fill our hearts with a complete picture of your glorious attributes your rule as king as well as your work as a savior it is and always will be said of you lord and savior two inseparable realities So help us to humble ourselves before our King and serve Him well. We ask in His name. Amen.